Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Logicast. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined today by my colleague, John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? I'm knackered. Absolutely broken. Well, that's not great for a Monday morning. What's uh, <laughs> what's led you to that state? Uh, eldest kids, fifth birthday party over the weekend, so like 25 kids uh, and just, oh. Well, I uh, I also tackled my first party uh, of my alcohol free for 23 voyage um and uh, i managed to stay alcohol free um which i guess is quite appropriate because it was a first birthday party uh, for my friend's one-year-old daughter so uh, perhaps if i had gone there and got drunk it may have been a little bit inappropriate but, uh, <laughs> i'm easing myself back into the party scene gently um <clears throat> so uh, anyway we're not here to talk about kids parties uh, we are here to talk about amazon web services and amazon web services news so if you're new to the podcast uh, every week i curate a uh, weekly AWS News Roundup newsletter. Um, and then John and I um, select a subset of the articles from the newsletter, which we take a little bit of a deeper dive on. So we've got a number of articles for you to talk about this week, for you to, for, for us to talk to you about this week. Uh, <coughs> uh, the first Are you one sure of those, you weren't drinking? <laughs> well, I've been on the alcohol-free beers, which have 0.5%. And I think maybe I'm getting the homeopathic effect of that 0.5% alcohol. Um, anyway, uh, the first of those articles uh, is from our friends at The Register. Um, and this one um, is an advertorial. So I suppose we can't really class it as news um, because AWS have directly paid to have it uh, on The Register. But it is on a news website. Um, and the article is really talking... Um, in a little bit more detail about some of the database innovations that AWS announced at reInvent back in November, December time. Um, so they announced a whole load of uh, new features and functions um, for their database portfolio. Um, there was a big uh, song and dance about Aurora Zero ETL integration with Redshift. So that's one of the things that the article covers. Uh, but uh, yeah, tell me, uh, tell me your thoughts on this one, John. I mean, advertorials in general or, or this specific one? Uh, no, not advertorials in general, because that's another <laughs> podcast that will take far too long. So, uh, yeah, this... <laughs> yeah, well, let, let's let's start with um, let's start with Aurora Zero ETL integration, as that's the first uh, feature that it highlights. Um, so I didn't really want to talk about that one because it's a lot less interesting. But the short version is historically to get data out of your database and into your data warehouse or your data lake as well, to be fair. But realistically, it was more your warehouse. You had to do what's called an ETL process an extract, transform and load. And for those of you who are unaware, my first job was on an ETL processing system for a major bank. So I'm very familiar with these systems and they're really boring. But... You know, they but do it sounds like tin. it sounds like this would have done you out of that particular job. <laughs> no, because it was all SQL Server. <laughs> ah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the short version um, of this is instead of having to extract it, munge the data around is a very British term, and then shove it into Redshift, you can just pipe it straight into Redshift, which just kind of saves you a lot of work, saves you a lot of time and effort and money because you know you're not having to pay for the ETL processing. So that's cool. If you if you need to get your data out of one thing and into another without having to mush it around, that's great. It's, it's just generally it's easier, and it, it leads more into the data lake kind of setup than the data warehouse setup. Where the warehouse setup, you are making some pre decisions about what the data should look like to put it in the warehouse, but the lake, you're just dumping it in, like all those toxic chemicals, just dump it in. So. You know, it's it's 
just moving where you're making the decisions to a great extent. But I'm much more interested to cut you off on the global database and then the blue-green deployments because global database is really cool. It's really cool. Um, for those of you unaware, this has been a thing in the Dynamo world for a little while, but not hugely long, where you can have one database, one Dynamo table, whatever, where you um, define your data, you put your data in it, and then it just replicates with about one second of latency to any other AWS region that you want it to be in. That's incredible. A, just the technology behind it, because that's mad. And B, because it, what you, it means you can do with it. In in the world where we live in now, where you've got these massive distributed systems and customer bases that aren't in one particular country or region, um, databases have always been a bit of a sticking point because there were regional services and it was kind of the backbone of your application and it needed to be in one place and you ended up with these kind of hacky sync systems or or having reader endpoints in, in different regions through cludging and then your writes were really slow. We had to do this queuing and caching and it was just a mess. You don't have to do that anymore. I mean, you haven't had to do that for about a year with Dynamo, which is really cool. And then they've done it for an actual database. That's mad. I mean, yes, Dynamo is an actual database. Don't email me. Um, but they've done it with a relational database, which is this really cool. It's really cool. It means your bog standard CRUD apps that 90% of the internet is, you need one database and you just put it in one place and it's available everywhere. Yes, okay, you're going to pay a bit more, but it's brilliant. It's amazing. So this is the Aurora Serverless V2, right, that you're yes. talking about? Yes, yeah. I don't like calling it serverless and I, I try and avoid calling it serverless because there's still lots of servers there and you actually still kind of pay for them as if they were servers. My view on serverless is much like Dynamo is, quote, serverless. Yes, there's servers underneath it, but you don't have to care. You don't pay for them based on servers. You pay based on capacity units. And I think, to be fair, with serverless v2, you now do pay based on capacity units. So I'm going to contradict myself. Um, but it's, yeah, it's serverless, but only just. Um, but the functionality of this scalability and, and global availability is incredibly powerful. That was a lot of itties in one sentence. It's better than a lot of isms. <laughs> uh, the other one that's quite cool is the blue-green deployment. Now, for those of you listening that are unaware, um, a blue-green deployment is a, it's a deployment mechanism that allows you to completely deploy your your new uh, your new code, your new app, your whatever to um, a new set of infrastructure, and then you test it, do a little bit of traffic shifting, and then once you get give give kind of the nod that it's okay you move all your traffic across and, and burn the old stuff it's great zero downtime testing in live all that kind of good stuff and now they've just kind of automated it which is so helpful yes you're paying for two sets of infrastructure and that's kind of expensive but it just means that you're not having to do all of the legwork yourself so that's really handy as well cool um, did you have anything to say on any of the other features, trusted language extensions for Postgres, or the uh, perhaps perhaps slightly more interesting one was the uh, guard duty RDS protection? Um, no, not really. The guard duty RDS protection is useful because it's, quote, a wide fabric protection and all that jazz. But it just means that there's more database specifics in place, which is nice. 
Cool. Well, I think that kind of covers off uh, everything that AWS wants to say about databases in that particular article. Um, and of course, the article links are in the show notes. Um, so if you want to read the article in more detail, check out the show notes and uh, you'll find all the articles that we talk about in there. Um, <clears throat> so let's skip on to the next one. Uh, this is uh, a blog post on the AWS bl news blog. Um, and it is about uh, new depo deployment pipeline, reference architectures, and reference implementations. Um, so this is a blog post by Sebastian Stormack about um, a new set of reference architecture implementations um, for enterprise-grade deployment pipelines. Um, so we're talking a lot about pipelines, um, deployment pipelines to, uh, to our customers at the moment, John. So what have you got to say about this one? Um, well, nothing specific about this pipeline as it were, because this is a pretty standard pipeline, right? And we've spoken about uh, deployment pipelines that live in code build and code pipeline and cloud formation and keeping everything in AWS. That way you don't have to worry about kind of external factors and things like that. So um, nothing specific about this pipeline, but more about the fact that they've now done a reference architecture. So it kind of explains this at, at the first couple of paragraphs about reference architectures and why they do them and all the rest of it but i wanted to touch on that because i think it's quite interesting so what you find in the tech world and i know you're not an engineer but i'm sure you've read a few of these white papers is you'll, you'll get this new kind of piece of technology come out and then enterprising folk i would say like me but i've never written one that i've made public um will come up with a that they'll, they'll hack around they'll play with it and they'll come up with some sort of example of here's how you do it and, and here's what it's for and all that kind of thing they'll publish it on github and they'll get lots of likes and lots of stars and lots of follows and they might get a job but you know that's kind of it is what it is and they've kind of hacked it around and worked out how they think it should work AWS has kind of taken that as an idea and gone, let's show people how we, as the vendor, think it should work, which is great. It's really nice. It's here's a, Yes, this architecture is a bit complicated and a little bit dry because it's deployment pipelines and most people find them quite dry. I think they're interesting, but then it's my job. Um, but then they've put it together to say, look, here's how you can do it. Here's how we recommend you do it. Here's all the services it's touching. It's... You know, we're going to do it with either the cloud development kit in a particular language, or we're going to do it in cloud formation, or or SAM if that's appropriate. But they'll never do one in Terraform because it's not their kit. And then they'll make it public and say, "Here's a way of doing it. This is a reference implementation. It's it's nearly production ready. It's not quite, but it's nearly production ready. They'll probably call it production ready, but I would argue that it probably isn't quite production ready because you want to make your tweaks for your own kind of environment." Um, but they've done it in such a way that someone that hasn't got five, ten years of experience doing it, I do, but people that have only got a couple of years experience can actually make a good stab at setting something like this up without making serious security flaws and silly mistakes and taking days and days and days and days to do it because they've kind of done the legwork for you, which is nice. The undifferentiated heavy lifting, as uh, AWS always like to, to call it, they've done... Some I always heavy thought that was more point. around the SaaS side than around writing a blog post because I do pick them up on that quite a lot where their version of taking away the undifferentiated heavy lifting is to tell you how to do it as opposed to just writing a thing that would do it. Or actually doing it. Um, yeah. 
like with their managed services such as RDS, mm. etc. Doing all the stuff in the background is uh... yeah. So I picked I mean, them up on that quite a lot. But let's face it, it's IT. The heavy lifting, really, the the heavy lifting is just getting the servers in the racks, isn't it? Um, you know, <laughs> which of course they are doing for you. They're very well. heavy. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have. Back in the day, I have, uh, yeah. HPC 7000 blade chassis, uh, you know, with uh, multiple power supplies and fans and so on and so forth. And even when you take all that stuff out, the chassis itself still weighs mm. a ton. You've got no hope of lifting it with it, with, with all the uh, all the blades in it. So, um, yeah, been, been I've, there, I've done that. With, so. I've not much around with blades, but I have moved, lumped around some old Google search appliances when you could put Google search on your own website. They weighed a ton. And they were yellow, weren't they? Were they yes, yellow? bright yellow yeah. with a Google logo yeah, on the yeah. front. You know, it's, a, it's always quite a good gimmick that painting your uh, your kit a certain bright colour because you would spot it when you're walking around the data centre. Yeah. You could always spot an F5 badge, you know, the big round red F5 badge on the front of an F5 load balancer. Uh, could always was it oh, which storage vendor? There was a storage vendor that painted all their kit orange. Um, so uh, you know, when you're walking around the data centre, you could just immediately spot it. And I always thought that was quite good quite good marketing of course quite, i'm not walking orange, around eh? data centers so yeah yeah exactly yeah <laughs> maybe that's where the uh, maybe the, uh, the idea came from uh, but uh, yeah thankfully i'm not walking around data centers anymore because aws are indeed doing that undifferent undifferentiated heavy lifting for us i don't know what's and wrong with my voice in. this morning i don't think my i put my teeth in properly this morning uh, uh, there we go um, so um, let's let's move on then from the reference architecture to hopefully something easy for me to say. Um, our next article is a, is another blog post um, on the uh, AWS Cloud Operations and Migrations blog, uh, which is about monitoring Amazon RDS and Amazon Aurora using Amazon Managed Grafana, um, which wasn't that easy for me to say, but I did manage to get it out without uh, uh, getting tongue-tied. Um, so uh, yeah, Grafana, of course, very popular in the uh, in the DevOps world. Amazon now have their own managed version of it, where they are doing some of the undifferentiated, undifferentiated heavy lifting for you uh, in providing that back <laughs> to you. Are you sure service. you've not been drinking? I have, no, I haven't. Do you know what it is? I've actually been exercising, so I think it's. Uh, I think I'm Don't high on endorphins. So uh, yeah, is, is uh, that what they call it when you smoke it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, back to the article. Monitoring Amazon RDS and Amazon Aurora using Amazon-managed Grafana. Tell us about this one, John. So Grafana, for those that don't know, it is kind of like the name implies. It's a graphing tool, amongst other things, but it makes some very nice, pretty graphs. I've installed and managed and run these sorts of things on servers myself, and it's not an enormous pain to do but if there's a managed service that will do it for you then generally devops folk folk that lean towards serverless lean towards managed services and not having to do things themselves because i don't want to have to do all that sysadmin work i'd rather let someone else do that because it's not interesting so there's that cloudwatch does give you some really nice metrics out of your rds and your aurora setup which is cool but not everyone wants to look at cloudwatch cloudwatch graphs aren't amazing people that necessarily want to look at the graphs or you want to put the graphs on a big screen somewhere in the office back when people used offices you don't necessarily want to log that into the aws console to have that kind of sitting there because it'll time out after an hour or two people that um want to see these graphs don't necessarily need access to your aws console don't want to learn how to use cloudwatch and all that kind of thing 
So this is a way of using a managed service and then putting up like a, a public or a semi-public or an authenticated view on that that isn't CloudWatch because Grafana will have its own URL, it'll have its own interface and all that kind of thing, which is quite nice. <laughs> Excuse me. On top of that, I think this is AWS kind of admitting that the tool that they built to do this isn't quite up to snuff for this particular use case. So yes, Grafana is something they're managing, but they didn't build it, they didn't make it, it's open source, so they're just kind of running it for you. Right? And they're kind of admitting that CloudWatch's graphing capabilities aren't good enough for this particular use case. I think that's growth. I think that's growth. Because they usually kind of point and say, just use our tools, but... This is one of the tools that isn't one of theirs, which is cool. Which everybody was using anyway. Well, yeah. <laughs> this There is certainly some evidence of, of that sort of thing where other people will set something up and then AWS will magically come up with a way of doing it using that, using a managed service. No, they're not spying on your account, promise, but good luck telling that to a CISO. It's much more likely that they're listening to their customers because they're already good at that. But then, yeah, you scroll down through the article, it tells you how to do it, and then they've got, you know, curated dashboards where they've done all of that legwork for you as well. You just kind of need to hook it all together. Um, and then you've got some really nice graphs, and it defaults to dark mode, which is much, much nicer. Um, and then, you know, all sorts of things. And then you can do alerts as well, which is great. So if you want to send it off to Slack or PagerDuty or whatever, you can do that through Grafana as opposed to kind of doing it through CloudWatch alerts and that kind of thing, which is which is nice. It's just nice. Are you, are you a fan of the dark mode? Uh, some and some. Some and some. It depends on the light level, I find, on, on whether you should be using light or dark mode. I never really, never really uh, got comfortable with dark mode. Uh, I think my phone kind of sets itself to dark mode, but, uh, yeah, in the working day. I know we have colleagues who... Uh, who won't use apps unless they have a dark mode. <laughs> Perhaps they live in the basement or something. I don't know. No, it's um, some and some. It's some and some. It depends on kind of the light levels, I find. If I'm sat in like a coffee shop or whatever, I'll have to turn light mode on because otherwise I can't see it. But mm. in here where I've got some natural light, some artificial light, and I'll, I'll tend to use dark. Fair enough. So uh, moving on, um, the next article uh, is on uh, dev.2. Um, uh, and it's by AWS hero Alan Helton. Uh, it's an article about the risks of moving too quickly with serverless development. Um, so, uh, again, something we're uh, actively involved in right now, uh, developing serverless applications for clients um, and uh, perhaps not moving as quickly as we would like. But uh, maybe uh, maybe I shared this one because I wanted you to actually read it, John. Perhaps. <laughs> 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 um, but, no, uh, you just yeah, wanted well, you just wanted to read the bit about the Lambo, didn't you? I, about the Lambo? Oh yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, yeah. Comparing it to uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His um, yeah, his car analogy. I do love a good car analogy. Actually, <laughs> but usually for me, it's the Ford Escort and the Rolls Royce, not the uh, not the Lamborghini and the Jeep Wrangler, as it is in this particular article. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so. Um, yeah, but so so, what are the risks, John? What what are the things that we should be mindful of um, in server, serverless development projects without just sort of rushing for the finish line and, and deploying our completed code? Well, yeah. So there's some things that are unique to serverless. There's some things that 
are not unique to serverless, but you didn't really see them in traditional applications like monoliths and whatever. So that's kind of like a microservice area. And then there's some stuff that's just been around forever and, and people are either not good at it from the beginning because it's boring or have kind of forgotten about it because this is a new brave frontier and everything's exciting and you can move very quickly and all the rest of it. I'm not going to list them out particularly in any great detail from the article, but kind of the TLDRs is unclear architecture. All right, so that's not necessarily serverless specific. It is kind of microservice related because in, in a monolith world, your architecture didn't matter hugely because you had your server and your database and that was kind of it. Yeah, In this new brave world of microservices and serverless in, in particular, it's not specific to serverless, but it kind of feeds into it, is you don't necessarily know when you're hacking things together where data is flowing through your system, where requests are coming from, where they're going to, and all that kind of thing. Because you've got lots of these little microservices, they're all kind of busy buzzing away talking to each other, and then a request goes back out to the user via some sort of queue. So you're not necessarily entirely clear how data moves through your system unless you've actually sat down and designed it and worked it out and all that kind of thing. Yes, you can kind of put tracing in place after the fact, but that's kind of running after the horse after it's already bolted. You'll probably catch it and you'll get there, but it was much faster to just lock the paddock to start with. Next one, change management. Poor change management. That's nothing new. Yeah, that's nothing new. Bad change management has been around since year dot because when you're first hacking something together, be it microservice, monolith, serverless, whatever, you're not doing change management because you need to get the product live or you're going to run out of money. So you just kind of get on with it. And then after time, it kind of comes in and gets a bit better and a bit better and a bit better. And then you end up in this massive corporate horrible environment where you go to a change advisory board once a week and you talk about what you're doing and, and everyone just passes it through on the nod but you've done the cab meeting well done didn't achieve anything and it all's gonna break anyway but you know box ticked so yeah do you like change writing unit tests no no one likes writing them <laughs> i'll do them but no one likes writing them they're boring no, is this thing going to do what like i think it's going them. to do Yes, yeah. I, it's whatever. They're much more useful in large development teams where other people are touching things and, and things are changing how they interact so that you can prove that that little unit of code does what it's supposed to do and then your integration tests kind of work out where things are talking to each other. It's much more useful in a world where it's more than one dev. In a world where it's one dev, it kind of feels like a box-ticking exercise, but there we are. Wide open permissions. I'm very guilty of this. Certainly in my early days of AWS, you just, you know, S3 star because I couldn't work out what permission it needed. AWS have made some inroads into this with things like cloud trail logging and stuff where you can kind of turn this particular feature on and by the requests it makes, it will tell you what permissions it actually needs. Um, but yeah, principle of least privilege is very important. And again, people are really bad at this because permissions are hard. And that's nothing new. NAF documentation. Yeah, I don't think I need to talk about that. Devs hate writing docos as a rule. Why is that though, John? Because it's, it's boring. Can't you automate it? I mean, to an extent, yes. And they kind of talk about that further down. You can do automated documentation, but it, again, it ends up being kind of less than helpful it will kind of tell you what the system it, it will tell you what's going on but not the why and the why is kind of what you need to write down 
Because in my kind of view, any developer worth their salt should be able to tell you what something is doing from the code, even if it's not a language they're particularly familiar with, because the formats are mostly the same, the syntax might be a bit different, but the flow, you can work it out, yeah. <clears throat> it's the why that kind of you need to write down, because that's the thing that was in the head of the person that was doing it at the time, and that's gone. Mm. So automated documentation is... is I would argue that it's not better than nothing. I mean, I would argue it's probably not, unless you've got this massive, just huge, great thing. But meh, the why is more useful. And then the last one is indicators for success, which is, you know, your KPIs, your SLIs, your SLAs, your SLOs, all those lovely acronyms that everyone hates. But if you don't know what good looks like, woggle, what good looks like, how can you measure it? You can't. So there's that. And then it, it, the article then goes on about careful planning and all this kind of thing. And I don't really want to go into it in great detail because it's a bit boring and we're running out of time. But the short version is none of these things are unique to serverless. There's a few that are more important in serverless and more difficult in serverless and microservice, which could be containers as well. They're kind of interchangeable as far as this article is concerned. But the short version is just pay attention really cool okay let's move on from serverless development um to uh, something which is in uh, the news an awful lot at the moment chat gpt um so there was an article on crn last week um with uh, aws cto werner vogels um slamming chat gpt as not being concerned about the truth um so um i know you've been using chat gpt mm. a little bit recently john so let's talk about that first and then let's uh, let's go on to Werner's opinion. What about ChatGPT in general? Well, just what you've been doing with it, yeah. Oh, uh, I've what, been getting it to write funny haikus. Been <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> been getting it to write funny haikus, <laughs> just because I like a haiku. <laughs> um, so ChatGPT in general, for those that don't know, are you under a rock or something? Um, <laughs> It's, it's a conversational AI that's designed to give kind of natural language processing and decent results and that kind of thing, right? If you actually ask ChatGPT what the point of ChatGPT is, it will not say, I am optimized for the truth, I am optimized for facts. It will say it's optimized to give realistic sounding answers. So this is not something they're hiding, yeah? It's, it's not optimized for it. It's just not. It's got a great big data set and it uses the GPT 3.5 framework, so there's x number of tens of millions of data points it can draw from um and then i've been like i say getting it to write funny haikus and and getting examples of code snippets from languages i'm not brilliantly familiar with and that kind of thing um just because it's much easier to ask it than it is to go and google it you just need to be very specific with what you're asking it otherwise it will just have a default that it goes to but if you ask it the right questions you can get some very interesting data from it but don't take it as rote because it 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 says it's not optimized for the truth. It's not necessarily optimized for correctness. It may have some biases and its data set stops in kind of 2021. So it's not brilliantly up to date. Like I did see yeah, a guy that managed to convince it that five plus five equals eight because his wife said it was and his wife is always correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. It's not connected to the internet, is it, apparently? So I don't know where the data set... I mean, I assume the data set did come from the internet at a point in time. Um, yeah. Like you say, it's not, a, it's not a live data set. It is a ring fence data set right now. Whilst they're I think I think by design, fun. right? Because any chatbots that have been from live data sets always end up going off down the far right rabbit hole. Microsoft yeah. did one, and in three days, it trained it on Reddit, I think, and in three days, they had to turn it off because it was so offensive. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what was the particular uh, thing that that worked? I don't, is, I don't know. If he, I never know if he's Werner or Werner. Is he Werner or Werner? I don't Werner? know. I don't know. Hmm. He's not German, so it might be Werner. Or is Let's he German? Let's go with Mr. Mr. Vogels. Vogels. Uh, <laughs> so what was it that Mr. Vogels took particular issue with with ChatGPT then? That it wasn't telling the truth. That, about? Um, he asked ChatGPT about um, something about why people are going to the cloud or going away from the cloud or security or something of that nature. And it just did things like, according to a recent report, and didn't have any evidence to cite. It was just kind of putting words together. And I think that was kind of his issue. It was it was, it was, was convincing, but it was not evidenced, because it's not shared the evidence. It's not gone, you know, a recent report, and then with the Cambridge notation that everyone that's been to university in the UK hates, you know, and telling you kind of where it's found those data, it's not done that. So I think that's his primary issue with it I, I part of me thinks because chat gpt has been not bought but microsoft have acquired a majority stake in it i think a billion um, dollar it, investment yeah. something like that yeah that this is aws taking a swipe at microsoft through proxies it, part of me thinks that but then i'm a cynic and i believe these sorts of things um it's not beyond the world of possibility i'm not a hundred percent sure that's what's gone on but it's you can't say it, it didn't factor but yeah i think he's just taking issue with the fact that it's putting words together convincingly to use his words but it hasn't evidenced it yeah 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 i uh, i'm with you on the microsoft thing um you know these vendors do like to take uh, these big vendors do like to take pot shots at one another any uh, any real opportunity um but uh, of course you know the, the the conversational element that that he's described is one feature of ChatGPT. You also mentioned the the, the code piece, mm. so you can actually get it to to write code for you. And of course, AWS does have their own um, competing product for that, which is Amazon Code Whisperer. Um, so uh, I guess uh, you know they want to <laughs> they want to they want to get people using that rather than ChatGPT. Um, and uh, I think I actually read somewhere that Amazon have a policy um, of, of uh, their users not putting uh, code code into um, ChatGPT because uh, obviously once you've put something into ChatGPT, it goes into the to the model and it becomes you know any data that you enter becomes the property of OpenAI and and, and therefore Microsoft. So you know if you've got Amazon developers that are kind of trying to enhance code, then effectively they're giving away. Um, company uh company information you know restricted information yeah. so um i've not but, seen anyone put code into chat gpt i've seen a lot of people go give me a profile page for a developer consisting of html and css made inject that kind of thing and it actually comes out with something that might not run out of the box but it, it looks convincing enough that you could put it in editor and you could debug it and it would probably work so it's not going to replace developers anytime soon but no it's useful. No, I, I think the other thing the article touched on was the fact that uh, bad actors can use it. And I, and I don't mean people like 
Uh, I'm trying to think of a bad actor now as an example. <laughs> what Brad Pitt. One doesn't. Yeah, uh, no, I mean, he's actually quite a good actor. I think maybe more like Bruce Willis uh, in his uh, in his later years. But no, that wasn't what I was thinking about because obviously Bruce Willis isn't a cyber terrorist. So uh, I was, <laughs> that's the sort of bad no, actor. No, but he threw was... a car at some cyber terrorists, didn't he, in the fourth Die <laughs> film? Oh God, that's going back away, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, you know, the article does go on to talk about the fact that uh, that, that bad actors can potentially use tools like chat gpt and indeed code whisperer i guess um to uh, to more effectively or, or to more easily write uh, malicious code um to use in, in cyber attacks so um it's always a way when a new technology comes along you've always got to think about how the bad actors are going to use it as well as uh, as well i as wouldn't the good be actors. too concerned about that there's a term from from Cybersecurity called skiddies, script kiddies, and the people that are just kind of running things, they don't really know what it's doing, they're just kind of fuzzing systems. That's kind of who's going to use this. Yes, the skids are going to get a bit better, but that's kind of about the size of it. If you've got an actual robust system in place, I wouldn't worry. I'm glad you went on to talk about script kiddies because I thought you were going in a different direction when you started skiddies. talking about skiddies. <laughs> uh, anyway, that brings us uh, rather neatly, thankfully, to the end of our time uh, for today's episode. We've gone a little bit over the, the, our, our normal 30-minute slot. So uh, thank you very much for, for watching uh, or listening um, to Logicast Season 2, Episode 5. We'll be back uh, next week with a, another episode of Logicast for you.